The reading is from Joel 3, verses 1 to 16, and it's on page 915 in the Bibles there. Page 915. In those days and at that time, when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put on them trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the peoples of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Thank you, Christine, for reading so clearly. So, let's start with a short recap of the first two chapters of Joel, but from a slightly more thematic viewpoint. Every chapter has an army, a multitude. In chapter one, it was a real host, a real disaster, the swarm of locusts. The locusts are not the day of the Lord, but the sky is blackened by their very number. Joel is using the reality of the locust army, its physical presence and destructive power, to give weight to the warnings in chapter 2 and 3. 
Throughout the Bible, there are often visible physical actions that reflect the invisible spiritual reality, which is where God wants us to focus. For it is in the spiritual reality that our salvation and eternity lies. Chapter 2 warns the Israelites, God's own people, about the oncoming host of the Lord and the destruction awaiting them if they do not follow the Lord in obedience. The whole of the Old Testament is about the elect of God, the the chosen race, the Jews, and their continual failure to live in obedience to God, their Saviour. Chapter 3, as we have just heard, warns the nations of the judgment awaiting them on the day of the Lord, for their wickedness and their treatment of God's people. This multitude is called to face God in the valley of decision, to face his judgment and his wrath. Joel's stark warning is that time is running out. There's always a way back to God, and he is patient and long-suffering. But there will come a time when his righteous justice needs to be satisfied. Let us stop and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a gracious and long-suffering God. Lord, we know that we have done right wrong in your sight, and we just want to say sorry. We have turned to Jesus, and we look to him as our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So, continuing into our passage. In those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 1. This refers to the verses 28 to 32 at the end of chapter 2, where Joel foretells the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This foretelling is picked up in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 14 to 21 where he explains the behavior of the disciples and their ability to speak in other languages. He quotes verses 28 to 32 in full to explain what is going on. So in those days, referred here in verse 1, must be the time following the death and resurrection of Lord Jesus. Jesus the Messiah also restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, for he is the king in David's line who will sit on the throne forever. David's line is secure. The Israelite nation is restored in God's kingdom. If only they will enter. But Jesus goes further and welcomes the nations, the non-Jewish peoples, into the kingdom also. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Thereby beginning to fulfill God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, which should be up on the screen in a minute, yeah. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What Joel goes on, now goes on to describe is like a courtroom process. 
where we will see God's righteous justice displayed as he judges the nations of the world. So we start off with the charge. In verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. God is going to gather the nations in the valley. Nowhere else in scripture is there reference to this valley. So it's probably an apocalyptic naming. Because of the nature of the terrain around Israel, the valleys were of great importance. And most, if not all, the important battles were for control of the valleys. Jehoshaphat means God judges, and so probably does not refer to King Jehoshaphat so much as a time coming when God will judge the entirety of the world. Then God, through Joel, levels the charge at the nations, which is to do with the way the nations have treated God's God's people and the land over the centuries. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine to drink. He charges them with invasion and dividing his land and scattering his people. He explicitly charges them with selling the children, essentially, for very trivial forms of self-entertainment, for prostitutes and wine. The charges carry on in verse 4. But these are against very specific near neighbours, Tyre and Sidon and the regions of Philistia, which should appear on the map. Tyre and Sidon are up at the top in that sort of brownie bit very close to a place called Beirut. And the, and the, Philist, the Philistines are in the red bit down towards the bottom. And you may recognize some of the town, town names that belong to the Philistines, Ashdod, Ashkelon. They come up a lot in the Old Testament. The Israelites fought all of these people on a regular basis. They'd been, Israel, they'd been long enemies of Israel and Judea, But God asked them what he has done to provoke their enmity. But he warns them he will swiftly bring the same actions on them that they have caused Israel to suffer. If we go back to the promise. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. God does not suffer his people to be persecuted. God adds a further charge, that of robbing Israel of its finest gold and silver treasures. These probably came from the the temple, as they have taken the treasures to their temples. And again, the selling of God's people as slaves to distant lands, in this case to the Greeks of Asia Minor. But God issues a warning. He will call his people back from wherever they have been sold, And the children of their enemies in Tyre and Sidon and Philistia will be taken and sold even to the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans are believed to be the people of the Queen of Sheba and so are well south in Africa. So a distant land 
from the coast of the Mediterranean. There may have been a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in 332 BC when Alexander the Great captured Tyre and sold 30,000 men, women, and children into slavery. So God's charge against the nations is their treatment of his people and his land. We now come on to the challenge. God now issues his challenge to the nations in verses 9 to 13. They're to prepare themselves for battle. And God is talking about every man, not just fighting men. Note the beating of plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears in verse 10. This is a reversal of the normal desire of God for peace. For example, Isaiah 2, 3 to 5, if we can bring that one up. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But this reversal, beating plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears, means there can be no economic activity, no agriculture only preparation for war. And this is emphasized by the weakling having to say they're strong. This is to be total war. Joel highlights the completeness of this gathering for judgment by calling on the Lord to bring his warriors in verse 11b. These are the host of heaven, invisible to human eyes in normal circumstances, but seen on occasion as revealed to Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6. If, can, yep, if anyone can read it. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. That is Elisha's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, the army and horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So God brings the nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat to be judged and to be punished. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness, says verse 13. Here we see the wrath of God ready to pour out because of man's great wickedness. 
We now come to the crisis. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The valley of decision is only referred to here in the Bible. It is the time of God's decision, the time of his judgment on all mankind. Once again, darkness will descend as the Lord roars his anger and thunders his judgment on all those who refuse to obey their creator. Even creation trembles at his wrath. What an awful picture of the future of mankind. Revelation 16.16 has a word for this time. It is Armageddon, where the armies of the nations gather and a final battle takes place with the Lord totally victorious. Here we see again the exact opposite of the Isaiah 2 prophecy. God thunders and roars his judgment here, whereas in Isaiah he issues his laws from Zion and his word comes out from Jerusalem. The contrast between God's love and his wrath is clear. However, in the previous chapters, God has a path out of the mess humanity has created. The end of verse 16 says, But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. God's prophets issue warnings about what is to come unless humanity changes their ways and recognizes God as the only sure and safe stronghold in the turbulent times ahead. Seek God, shelter under his wings, faithfully follow his laws and obey his commands, for that way lies safety and security. God is patient and gracious. He waits for his children to come home. Chapter 2 finished with, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Throughout the book of Joel, the day of the Lord has been spoken of four times. In chapter 1, verse 15, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and verse 31, and now here, in chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15. The latter three are all accompanied by an encroaching darkness, a time when the sun is blotted out. This time reminds us that as Jesus hung on the cross at Golgotha, in Zion, outside Jerusalem, the sky was darkened and the sun was blotted out, whilst Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we might not be judged and condemned on that final day in the Valley of Decision. But more than that, the cross speaks of reconciliation, not just of God to man, but also to all of creation, which Joel has clearly shown is as much in need of restoration as mankind. The effects of mankind's sin are everywhere. Jesus came so that he fulfilled all the law and the prophets. So Joel's prophecies here are fulfilled in Jesus. Yet there still remains the judgment for all who do not believe. 
Joel's warnings went first to the Israelites, God's chosen people, the elect, with a stark warning of destruction if they were not faithful and obedient to God. Then it go, the warning goes out to all the nations. Jesus came so that we might shelter in him, covered by his righteousness and not exposed by our own sinfulness. Jesus came to give us a path through life so we might come to the valley of decision and be able to stand under God's judgment, wearing the gift of Jesus' own righteousness, granted to us by the grace of God. But the valley of decision is a long one, and for us, it stretches from today until Jesus returns to judge creation. We walk a path that requires decisions constantly. We must seek the Lord's heart and his kingdom in every one of those decisions. For our path is narrow. Although we do have a helper, comforter and guide on whom we can rely. Jesus left us the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable us to become the holy children of God. But the wide way is filled with the multitude Joel describes, arriving at the end of the Valley of Decision, where the Lord awaits with sadness on his face, because when he pronounces judgment, they'll be cut from him, and any possible path to salvation. For them, there will be decision points along the way, which could have moved them along the different path that Jesus has to offer. If only, if only they had heard the gospel, if only they had listened, if only a friend or relative had persisted in speaking about Jesus, in praying to Jesus, if only that chink of God's light had shone into their soul, if only. But to seek a refuge, you need to know, we need to know we are in danger. We need to be warned. One of the stories coming out of the tragedy of the wildfires on Maui in Hawaii was that the emergency sirens never sounded. The warning messages were never sent. People never heard of the danger. No one envisaged the circumstances of wildfires in the middle of a hurricane. Joel's warnings may have gone unheeded, and they still do so. But we cannot say that we, weren't, we haven't been warned. And as Christians, we should be very aware of the consequences of the unsaid gospel message, of failing to pass on the message of the safety and shelter freely offered by Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul summarizes the situation in Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, and so to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
everyone we know, including ourselves, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we all need a refuge from God's wrath. We cannot be declared righteous because of our own good living, because it's not good living. God put forward Jesus. He is the refuge for Jew and for Gentile, for men and for women, for old and for young, for rich and for poor. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And this means that the judgment due to the sinners on the day of the Lord in the valley of decision was put on Jesus when he died on the cross. In dying, Jesus achieved two things for us. We are justified by his grace. Justification means forgiveness, absolution, restoration of peace with God that had been lost because of our many sins. All our wrongs are wiped away. And secondly, redemption. That is Christ Jesus. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means that through his death, Jesus purchased us for himself, making us his own. These are gifts from God, offered freely by him, which any of us can receive, but only through faith, by relying completely on who Jesus is and what he has done to be made right with God. But we need to recognize and repent of our sin, an internal, heartfelt, life-changing repentance, which goes on until we are glorified in Jesus' presence. For us to change, we need the power and support of the Holy Spirit, because our heart's desires are deeply embedded and often invisible, but they affect every decision we make. Ultimately, the valley of decision is not about any decision we make or don't make. It is God's decision that lies at the heart of the word justified. When God justifies a person, he makes a decision in their favor. God's decision about every person will be revealed on the last day. This great announcement will be made at the end of life. But do you want to wait until the last day? For most people, they will live their whole lives not knowing what the outcome of that ultimate decision will be. And in general, not caring, because they do not know God and Jesus. So imagine their shock and horror in the valley of decision. Why not have the assurance now that we will be found not guilty when our sins are leveled against us because of Jesus? As it says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification is God's decision, made known in advance to all who are in Christ. All we've done, all that's written in God's book under our name, has been poured out on Jesus. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. Condemnation came and went at Calvary. As far as our sins are concerned, when we are in Christ, our eternity is not hanging in the balance. God's decision about us 
has already been made. What a saviour we have in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given Lord Jesus to us so that we have a path out of the mess that we have created. Lord, we thank you for his willingness to sacrifice himself on the cross to bring us a way back to you. Help us to grasp that opportunity. Help us to grasp the gift that you're giving to us. Help us to become your children as we go through life. In Jesus' name, amen.